0: Well if you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Second Corinthians, we're in chapter three, we'll be starting at verse seven. Second Corinthians three, seven, and we'll go through the end of the chapter, verse eighteen. Hear God's word. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For there is glory in the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, What once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, we recognize that we need you. We need you even to open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in this, in your scriptures. And so we pray that you would do that. Pray that you would teach us, humble us, mold us, shape us, and give us great confidence in the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was on January 9th, 2007. That Apple CEO Steve Jobs stood in front of a packed auditorium and presented, unveiled for the first time ever, the iPhone. Maybe easy to forget just how revolutionary that moment was. If you think of it, before then, cell phones were small, they flipped open, crazy as that seems. Sending text messages required a strange proficiency in T9 texting abilities. And lest we forget, especially for the, those who might be a little younger than me, cell phones had buttons, not touchscreens, buttons. You had to press things on them. And this is not even to mention perhaps the most dramatic thing yet was that on the iPhone you could use the full powers of the Internet, It was revolutionary. The launch of the iPhone was the dawn of a new age of technology. Cell phones were no longer just for texting and calling, communicating. You now held a supercomputer in the palm of your hand. It was a new age. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is speaking about a turn in the ages. Not of technology, but of ministry. The waning of an old age and an old ministry and the dawning of a new one. The old had gone, the new had come. The former age, that former ministry was characterized by Moses and the law that came through him. But this new age was a new ministry, that of Christ and Spirit. And Paul was taking time in this letter to speak about this turn of the ages, because it seems that despite the fact that his ministry to the church of Corinth had been successful in some measure, they'd accepted the gospel of Christ, but there were other preachers who had come in, and they were preaching a different message than Paul. And what's more, they would have seen themselves as over and above Paul. If Paul was an apostle, they were super-apostles. And it would seem that at least part of their message, of their preaching, was to try and win the church of Corinth away from the gospel and back to the law of Moses. And it's important for us to remember as we engage with a text like this that The preaching of the gospel in that day, the the preaching that that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all the promises of the old covenant that had been fulfilled in this man, in some ways would have seemed like a novel concept in that day. And it seems like at least some of the church in Corinth were doubting the gospel and wondering if maybe, just maybe, they needed something different. Maybe that old covenant ministry that was good, wasn't it? It was strong, tactile, even glorious. And where the issue with the gospel for those in Corinth was maybe its novelty, its, its newness, the issue and challenge for some of us today might not be that the gospel is new, but rather that it's ancient, it's, it's oldness maybe. Is the gospel still good enough for our day? Oh, yes, we've heard the gospel. We've understood the gospel. Maybe we've even lived for a time under the ministry of the gospel. But is this ancient message still good for us today? After all, the problems of our day are massive, aren't they? There's war in the Middle East, war in Europe. And even in our own country, violence and polarization are all too often the main characteristics of what we see in the news. We have big problems in our world today. Is is there something new or better or different for us to look to? Do we need to move on from the gospel? Or is it actually enough for us today as well? Well, I believe that Paul's answer to the Corinthians is the same answer for us today as well. That the new covenant ministry, the gospel, it is far more glorious than anything else, and we can hold on to it. To put it simply, we can boldly cling to the glorious gospel. And, and Paul reveals this in our passage in an extraordinary, incredible ways. He uses the, some of the details of the text of Exodus 34 to demonstrate the grandeur and beauty of the new covenant and the gospel ministry. This ministry that we call the gospel. And he does it in two ways. There are two kinds of glories and there are two kinds of veils that we might boldly cling to the glorious gospel. And so we'll look first at these two kinds of glories that that Paul highlights. And this is mainly in verses 7, even into 12. And the key word in this section is glory. Ten times in these five verses it shows up. Paul's comparing the old covenant age and its ministry to the new covenant age and its ministry by comparing glory. So if we look right away in verse 7 and we're drawn to Paul's explanation of the events at Mount Sinai from Exodus 34. If the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, Exodus 34 is ringing up in our minds. Of course, that chapter comes on the heels of Exodus 32, where Moses went up Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord. The people did sin greatly, though, by creating and worshiping a golden calf. The Lord was angry with the people, rightly so. And he was going to destroy them, but for Moses' intercession for the people, and God relented. And in these events, Moses was made this mediator between God and his people, and God would, as we read in Exodus 31 11, he's, God says, um, this verse says that God would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And so Moses went up the mountain again, and we come to Exodus 34, and the end of it, verses 29 to 35, which is worth reading because of its significance for our Second Corinthians text. It says this, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he was talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Moses had spoken with the Lord, and the glory of God radiated from his face. There was glory in the ministry of Moses, glory in the ministry of the law, glory in the ministry of that old covenant. The people couldn't look directly at it, but they could see that glory in the face of Moses. And so as Paul reflects on this, his logic is that though there was glory in that old covenant ministry, this new covenant age and its ministry are far more glorious. It's a lesser to the greater kind of argument. If this was good, how much better is this? And so the old's described in three ways. First, verse 7, it's called a ministry of death. The old covenant ministry was outside in. It gave the rules but had no power to raise a dead soul to life. It was a ministry of death. But also verse 9, it was described as a ministry of condemnation. Though the law could tell people how to be holy, it had no way to empower people to actually keep it. And so all it could do was allow people to stand condemned. What's more, verse 11, it's described as something that was being brought to an end. It was temporary, not permanent, not meant to be the high point of God's revelation, but pointing to something else. Death, condemnation, temporary. Yet even that ministry came with glory. That's what Moses' shining face shows. That old covenant ministry of the law did indeed come with glory, the glory of God radiating from the face of Moses. Yet, Paul says, there's something far more glorious than that. The glory of the new covenant and its greater promises wildly outshines the glory of the old. This new covenant ministry... It's not a ministry of death, but verse 6 and 7, of life in the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The gospel, it's not a try, harder, adhere to the rules and you will be saved message. No, it's the good news that when one comes to Christ, they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit who writes God's law on their heart. Spiritual life from the inside out. How much more glorious is that? What's more, this ministry is also a ministry not of condemnation, but of righteousness. Verse 9 shows us this. Acquittal, forgiveness, your sins not counted against you. As Paul will say near the end of chapter 5, Christ became sin, though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is not a message of banging the Bible over your head in condemnation, but rather how sinners can be counted righteous in the eyes of a holy God. How glorious is that? A far exceeding glory. But even more yet, this ministry is not being brought to an end, but it's permanent. Verse 11 brings this to mind. Well, the old covenant was temporary, the new is not. We have crossed into the new once and forever. The ministry of the gospel will not be eclipsed by another, not fading, but forever. Much more glory. And verse 10 sums up this lesser to the greater logic. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. And though the old did come with glory. Think of it. The Israelites had God's presence among them in such a way that when Moses would speak the word of God, they would see the very glory of God shining from his face. Incredible. But even that glory came with death and condemnation and impermanence. It has been wildly outshone by the exceedingly greater glory of the gospel. To use one commentator's image, consider an incandescent light bulb. In a dark room, glorious. But it comes to nothing when you bring it into the noonday sun. Friends, the gospel shines like the glory of the noonday sun. There's nothing brighter, there's nothing better. And we're in not in the age of the death bringing, condemnation incurring, temporary fading ministry of the old covenant. No, we are in the age of the Spirit's life giving, righteousness bringing, eternally shining gospel ministry. We're not in the age of the light bulb, we're in the era of the sun. It's amazing so Paul says in verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We cling to this. We proclaim this. This is our hope. We have such a hope. Hope in the Christian understanding is not a, maybe I'll get this, but maybe not. I'll, I hope that I do. <laughs> That's not that kind of thing. It's not the, I don't know if my boss will give me the raise, but I sure hope he does. No, Christian hope's a little different. Christian hope is being sure of what we have, even if we don't see it yet. As Paul writes in Romans 8, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Friends, the gospel is our hope. Life in the Spirit. The righteousness of Christ. Forever. That's a hope worth clinging to. It may be tempting to look elsewhere. Light bulbs abound. There will be some that say our hope is not worth clinging to in our modern day, that we need to catch up with the times. Adjust our beliefs for the modern age. Jesus' message of exclusive worship may rub some the wrong way. But friends, the gospel is the most glorious message that could ever touch our ears. There is nothing that comes next. There's nothing brighter, nothing more beautiful, nothing more powerful, nothing more glorious than the gospel. We've entered into the, this new age and there's no going back. Let's not get fixated on the light bulb. The sun's shining. We can boldly cling to the glorious gospel. So there's two kinds of glories. And then Paul moves into this discussion of two kinds of veils. We see this Verse 12 through the end, verse 18. And the first veil we encounter is an unlifted veil. Verses 13 and 15 bring this out. 13 to 15. It's the veil that obscures a vision of God's glory. Of course, verse 13 brings us back to the image of Moses' veiling, again in Exodus 34. But we get, it's in this verse we gain another important detail from Paul. The reason why Moses put the veil over his face. Paul says Moses would put a veil over his face so that. So that why? So that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. There's a lot of discussion on what this means and people see it different ways, but it seems to me that the reason Moses veiled his face is so that the Israelites wouldn't get so mesmerized, so preoccupied with the lesser glory on his face that they mistook it for the full revelation of God's glory. They weren't supposed to mistake the glory shining from Moses' face as the final and high point of God's revelation and relationship with his people. So Moses veiled his face so they wouldn't gaze so intently at the incandescent light bulb that they missed the noonday sun. This same phrase, being brought to an end, comes up in verse 7 and in verse 11. And there we see what was being brought to an end? The old covenant. So Moses put on the veil in order to demonstrate that the old covenant was temporary, just as their viewing of that glory in his face was temporary that there was something better on the way. A new age, a new covenant, a greater glory. But of course, the Israelites did miss the point. Their minds were hardened, verse 14 says. And even in the, all the way into Paul's day, Jews faithfully going to the synagogue, reading, hearing the Old Testament scriptures, Moses being read, but a metaphorical veil over their hearts. They couldn't see the greater glory. I was thinking of it like pin the tail on the donkey at a kid's party. Blindfolded, pinning the tail on the back, on the head, on the feet, even missing the poster entirely because of a veil. They missed it. Fixated On the light bulb, unable to see the surpassing wonders of the glorious gospel of God. Well, it was true in Paul's day, it certainly is in ours as well, is it not? Veils over faces, hardened minds and hearts, unable to see the wonders of the surpassing glory of God. For some today, it's like the Israelites of Paul's day, searching the Scriptures but missing the main point, missing Christ, because, of course, the message of Christ is the center of the message of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, but it's entirely possible if we're not careful to read the Bible and completely miss the good news about Jesus. That Genesis points to Christ. That the Law points to Christ. That the Psalms and the Prophets point to Christ. The Gospels point to Christ. The Letters points to Christ. It's all about Jesus, His death and His resurrection on our behalf, so that you and I, those sinners, might have a restored relationship with God. What a grave mistake it would be for us to miss Jesus in the Bible. What a grave mistake it would be to learn all the finite details of a text and miss Jesus. We can't just study for study's sake, but study for the sake of clearly seeing the glory of the gospel. So the first kind of veil is unlifted. Then we have a second kind of veil that's a lifted veil. And we see this in verses 16 to 18. So where the first veil represented a a blindness to the gospel, the lifted veil is the opposite, a clear vision of Christ. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Lord is the Spirit. (laughs) To be clear, it's a tough phrase. (laughs) But this phrase is, talking about Christ, the Lord. It's not trying to say that Christ and the Spirit are the same, but rather that where is Christ, so too is the Spirit. And where the Spirit is, Paul says, there is freedom. When someone turns to Jesus, God removes the veil from his or her eyes, and they are united to Christ by the Spirit, and they enjoy ultimate freedom the basic experience of conversion. God removes the veil from our eyes as we look to Christ and are united with him by the Spirit. It is in that moment that a person moves into the realm of this gospel ministry, the realm of the Spirit, not blinded any longer to the glorious realities of Christ, but seeing Jesus freely. It's the difference between stumbling around a dark house at night and someone turning on the lights. Has this happened to you? Maybe you're here this evening and you have not yet turned to the Lord. Know that my hope and prayer is that you might. I know there are many things that call out for your attention, your hope, your belief, your trust, your confidence in this world. Maybe you're exploring the claims of Christ. Maybe you're considering Christianity and following Jesus. I'm glad you're here tonight. (laughs) It's a good place to be. And know this, that if you ultimately want to see The ultimate glory possible. There's nothing like the glory of Christ, the glory of the gospel, an unimpeded vision of God, seeing him clearly. May you this evening turn to the Lord and have the veil lifted from your eyes. Clear vision. Ultimate freedom. That's what Christ brings. Freedom. Freedom from the old. Freedom from death. Freedom from condemnation. Freedom from a temporary hope. And freedom for life in the Spirit. Freedom for righteousness. Freedom forever. There is ultimate freedom in the gospel. And so verses 16 and 17 speak to the basic experience of conversion. Verse 18, in many ways, describes the core of the life of the Christian. That we all, with an unveiled face, behold the very glory of the Lord. Which we learn in chapter 4, verse 6, is the very glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we're transformed. It's both that little by little transformation into the image of Christ, into who you were truly made to be, but also the transformation the transformation from one glory to another, from the old glory to the new, from the lesser into the greater, transformed into this new age of the gospel, seeing Christ, freeing Christ, living for Christ forever. And when this happens, it's no longer Moses going into the tent of meeting and speaking with the Lord. It's no longer seeing the glory of God reflected on the face of Moses. No, it's, it's as if we all become a Moses, unveiled face before the Lord seeing the splendor of his majesty, his glory on full display. One commentator puts it this way, united to Christ, we look like Christ as we gaze at Christ. How often, though, do we look in all the wrong places for that kind of transformation We want to do something that we can control at times. A new routine, a new diet, a new job, a new relationship. Of course, those things aren't bad. And they can be good in many ways. But they can't transform us into the people we were made to be. (laughs) Or we look for transformation in, yes, trusting Jesus some, but also this. No, no. Our complete and full confidence must be in the gospel. Because to become who we were truly made to be, we need real spiritual power for that, don't we? Let's not forget the basics. (laughs) Time with the Lord. Sitting in the sweet presence of Jesus, there is no way to not be transformed. So gaze at Christ in the scriptures. Seek and search the deep truths of Jesus and who he is, what he's done, what it means to follow him and to live as you were made to be. Gaze at Christ in prayer. Seek his face. Lay your heart bare before him and let him fill you with the confidence and assurance that he loves you. And you will be transformed becoming who you are made to be and all this comes as paul reminds us from the lord who's the spirit (laughs) it's not our work but the spirits not the old but the new not letters on stone but the spirit giving life brothers and sisters we will see jesus face to face Oh, that we might cling to that glorious gospel. Is this gospel good enough for us today? I answer in the affirmative. Yes, it is. There will always be something else calling out for our hope, our affections, our confidence, our attention. But there is nothing, nothing more glorious than the gospel May we cling to it, come what may, because that is our hope, that we will see Jesus face to face and look him in the eyes and see his smiling face and run into his open arms and cling to him forever. Let's pray. God, when we consider the glories of who you are and what you've done for us, we can't help but stand in wonder at just how much you love us, just how good you are to us, just how glorious you are. God, we confess that there may be times in our lives where we are tempted to move on from the gospel or move away from the gospel and try and seek some other comfort, confidence, hope. But Lord, we confess in this moment that the gospel is so glorious. That is our hope. May you give us deep faith. May you draw us close to yourself as we consider our hope that we will one day see you face to face. What a glorious day that will be. We thank you that we can trust that. It's in Jesus' name, amen.